The following PTJ podcast is the 41st Mary McMillan Lecture, delivered by Dr. Andrew Guccione at the opening ceremonies of PT 2010, the annual conference and exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association, on June 16th, 2010, in Boston, Massachusetts. Introducing Dr. Guccione is APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward. Welcome to the 41st Mary McMillan Lecture. Before introducing this year's lecturer, I would like to take a few moments to remember Mary McMillan and share her legacy. Molly, as her friends knew her, was an educator, author, and a leader in the field of physical therapy. After completing a bachelor's degree at the College of Physical Culture in Liverpool, England, Molly worked with children under the tutelage of Sir Robert Jones. In 1918, Molly was assigned to Walter Reed General Hospital as head reconstruction aide and helped to found the U.S. Army's first organized physical therapy department. Later that year, she was granted a leave of absence from the Army to participate in the Reed College Emergency Training Program for Reconstruction Aides. Graduates of this and other emergency programs helped to handle the peak load of patients in 1919, immediately following World War I. During this time, Molly prepared her book, Massage and Therapeutic Exercises, the first book published by a physical therapist in the United States. On January 15, 1921, an association of physical therapists was established during an organizational meeting in a very important place, Keene's Chop House in New York City. Mary McMillan was elected the first president of the American Women's Physical Therapeutic Association. The Mary McMillan Lecture Award was established to honor and acknowledge a member of the association who has made distinguished contributions to the profession and to provide the recipient with an opportunity to share his or her ideas through a lecture presented at our annual conference. At this time, I have the honor of asking all previous Mary McMillan lecturers to please stand and be recognized as your name and the year of your lecture are announced. Please hold your applause until I have completed the introductions. Dr. Helen J. Hislop, 1975, Dr. Geneva R. Johnson, 1985, Mr. Charles M. Magistro, 1987, Mr. Robert C. Bartlett, 1991, Dr. Shirley S. Sarman, 1998, Dr. Suzanne K. Campbell, 1999, Dr. Ruth B. Pertillo, 2000, Dr. Stephen L. Wolfe, 2002, Dr. Marilyn Moffat, 2004, Dr. Rebecca L. Craig, 2005, Dr. Stanley V. Paris, 2006, and Dr. Anthony DeLito, 2008, Dr. Carolee Winstein, 2009. It is now my great honor, privilege, and pleasure to introduce Dr. Andrew Guccione as the 41st Mary McMillan Lecturer. Andrew A. Guccione is currently Deputy Director, Health Services Research and Development Research, Office of Research and Development, Department of Veterans Affairs, Washington, D.C. Previously, he was Senior Vice President Division of Practice and Research at the American Physical Therapy Association. Prior to relocating to the Washington area, Dr. Guccione was Director of Physical Therapy Services at the Massachusetts General Hospital and also spent 11 years with the Boston University Multipurpose Arthritis Center as part of the Health Services Research Unit. His research interests are in geriatrics, health status measurement, and functional outcomes after rehabilitation. In addition to authoring or co-authoring over 20 manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals, he has received grant funding from the Arthritis Foundation and was the recipient 
of a Special Emphasis Research Career Award from the National Institute on Aging. His clinical practice has centered mainly on geriatrics and musculoskeletal impairment in older adults. He is the editor of a textbook in geriatric physical therapy, now preparing its third edition. Dr. Guccione received his Ph.D. in sociology and a certificate in gerontological studies from Boston University. He also holds a master's degree in philosophy from Temple University and a master's degree in physical therapy from Boston University. He was graduated from Boston College with an A.B. cum laude in English and philosophy, and his post-professional DPT was awarded by the MGH Institute of Health Professions. During his career, he has held faculty-level appointments at Sargent College, Boston University, Boston University School of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, MGH Institute of Health Professions, and George Washington University. Concomitant with his professional development, Dr. Guccione became a student member of APTA in 1977. He is currently the chief delegate for the District of Columbia. An active member of the Massachusetts chapter for 20 years, he was at various times chapter newsletter editor, chair of the Eastern District, delegate and chief delegate. He has also actively participated in the House of Delegates as either a delegate or a member of APTA staff for 28 of the last 30 years. His contributions to the Massachusetts chapter earned him the chapter's Mary McDonald Service Award and the chapter's Research Award. Dr. Guccione was the first chairperson of the Geriatric Specialty Council for the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties and led the team that developed the first clinical specialist examination in geriatrics. Nationally, he served on the Judicial Committee, as it was then called, and also was elected to two terms on the Board of Directors as Speaker of the House. He has been honored by the APTA with a Lucy Blair Service Award in 1989 and election as a Catherine Worthingham Fellow in 1998. Please now, Join me in honoring Dr. Andrew Guccione. Thank you. Thank you to President Ward and members of the Board of Directors for voting this honor to me. Distinguished guests, colleagues, friends, family, thank you for the privilege of addressing you this morning. Almost all of my predecessors have spoken about the terror of the blank page. One of the first tasks in delivering this lecture is to choose a title, a disconcerting assignment given that the lecture is still 10 months away, and nocturnal anxiety is a well-documented symptom among the previously reported 40 cases of this honorable affliction. It is rather like typing war and peace and then hoping the rest of the story just comes to you. So you quickly turn to scan through the lectures that have been published and are confronted with such keen insight that you begin to appreciate the real challenge of this opportunity. All the good ideas have already been taken. <laughs> These were the moments during which I thought I might actually have to make good on a concept that popped into my head just a few hours after the award was announced last year when I was asked what I would do. Macmillan, the musical. <laughs> Yet, despite all of you who eagerly volunteered to be part of the opening production number, our respect for our founders' great vision of a professional society and the honor of the occasion itself require a far more serious reflection on a scientific healthcare profession and an association that is not far from its 90th anniversary. I chose the title for this lecture from an entry in Markings, Dog Hammarskjöld's Reflections on Meaning and Purpose in Life. Hammarskjöld was the second Secretary General of the United Nations and worked endlessly after World War II in pursuit of an ideal, to establish an institution where nations could resolve conflict without war and collaborate for the benefit of humankind. He wrote, and so keep alive the incentive to push on further, 
that pain in the soul which drives us beyond ourselves. Do not look back. And do not dream about the future either. Your duty, your reward, your destiny are here and now. Now, Macmillan lecturers tend to use words such as vision and dreams quite a lot, as well they should. Each lecture has inspired us to think about what would happen if only we could imagine a day when, in many instances, we would have done well to take their counsel. All too often, however, visions become momentary hallucinations and dreams mere fantasies because we are so paralyzed by the contingencies of the moment that we fail to take the most important step, the next one. While each of us likes to assume we have complete control over our future, we know that we do not exist in a world entirely of our own making or fully under our control. No one has the perspicacity to capture the future. As Winston Churchill noted, it is a mistake to try to look too far ahead. The chain of destiny can only be grasped one link at a time. Every rehabilitation specialist knows how capricious life can be when disease and disability intrude upon promise on a personal level. In reality, there is no day that comes with a guarantee. So we act as if, as if there were such certain knowledge, but with full awareness that even our most well-thought-out efforts will have unintended consequences. Our destiny is always and only in the moment before us. There may be times to reflect on a road not taken, but rarely time to regain the step not taken. What makes the Macmillan such a distinct experience for the lecturer is the personal narrative that accompanies whatever one chooses as the topic. Specifically, the award instructions are to discuss one's contributions to the profession and the path taken to the podium. So I began last year to experience the true gift of receiving the Macmillan the opportunity to reflect upon my experience in the context in which I have lived for almost 60 years, more than half as a physical therapist. If there is karma, then it is certainly significant that we have congregated in Boston. I first came to Boston in 1968 as an undergraduate to study philosophy and English literature at Boston College, a somewhat untraditional path into physical therapy even today. However, my career as a physical therapist would have been quite different had I initially set out to be one. From the rigid orthodoxy of my early education, where questioning of any sort was often regarded as a clear indication of moral deficiency, <laughs> I went to the cultural revolution of the mid-60s. The Jesuits fed my intellectual roots, which creeped from analytic philosophy to phenomenology. My undergraduate education encouraged the development of three precepts. Be faithful to the language of the text when interpreting meaning, grasp experience as a tool to understanding, and exemplify authenticity. Demonstrate what you believe to be true about the world in what you think and how you act. I later continued my studies with graduate work in philosophy, especially logic and ethics, which further molded my perspective on assumptions, the processes of making decisions under varying conditions of uncertainty, and particularly the formulation of rules for how one categorizes and uses experience to arrive at knowledge. Because my interest in philosophy far exceeded my talents as a philosopher, I experienced the first of many happy accidents those unexpected opportunities in life that arise from the bumps in the road that seem disastrous at the time, but are truly fortuitous in retrospect. I turned to physical therapy through another non-traditional experience, an undergraduate drama society. Theater in the late 60s was experimental, and its emphasis on mime and expressive movement led our college theater troupe to work with a physical therapist, both to increase flexibility and to prevent even more injuries than we were already suffering. That experience lingered and eventually prompted me to get a job as a physical therapy aide in a small community hospital, and later received my physical therapist education at Sargent College in what was then one of the few post-baccalaureate entry-level programs in the country. I can only say thank you to my former teachers for valu valuing me exactly as I was then. 
It would have been far easier to dismiss me as a nuisance who asked too many questions about the philosophical principles underlying treatment and answered too few questions correctly on tests. My clinical affiliations may rank among the all-time negative learning experiences in the annals of physical therapist education. I suppose that the hospital that did not allow students into the staff room to eat lunch with a therapist has changed its rules by now. (laughs) However, I am especially grateful to the one clinical educator who took the time to craft me into what I could become rather than to cry that I would never be her perfect mirror image. I do not think that physical therapists ever forget their first patients or the experience of those first encounters. Working at an inpatient rehabilitation hospital in an era just before utilization review, I had plenty of time to know patients as people. I am grateful for what they taught me. The patients I remember span the social spectrum and all walks of life. The hotel chambermaid who lived alone in a trailer park and later sent me a postcard that she had finally moved to be with her sister, shyly suggesting that I probably would not remember her. The Beacon Hill matron with her pearl choker, who quite tastefully protested that there would be nothing to serve her visitors now that we had confiscated her Dubonnet, and who, while working on on a developmental sequence down on a mat one day, told me with a perfect Massachusetts malocclusion, my dear boy, I only get down on my knees in church. Or the recent recent Russian emigre who only spoke Yiddish and and Russian, of which I knew only a few words in either language and none particularly fitting to therapy. (laughs) So we settled on treatment sessions in German, the only language of which we both knew a little, a very little. Or the wife of a patient who practically lived on the floor, attending to her husband 12 hours a day, so afraid he wouldn't make it home or worse, come home before he was better. Somehow she thought it was necessary to pass the mental status exam in order to stay in the hospital. I could often overhear her through the curtain coaching Jules while I treated his roommate. Julie, it's Kata. Kata is the president. You got that, Julie? Kata. (laughs) During those days, it was common to make a home visit with the patient about one week before prior to discharge. There was this particular patient with whom I had worked daily for about three months. An older man in his mid-80s, he had an incomplete spinal lesion from a metastatic primary of the prostate. He was finally independent in transfers and could ambulate safely using a walker and standby assistance. So one afternoon, the patient, the OT, and I piled into a taxi and went to his house just outside the city. With each therapist taking a flank, he began the long walk up the steep driveway, his head craned down, watching each step over the cracked concrete. We heard the aluminum storm door creak open, and his wife came out to greet us. At that moment, he lifted up both his arms and, stretching out towards her, shouted, Emma, I did this for you. I didn't get it at all then, my only awareness being that a patient, my patient, had taken his hands off his walker. (laughs) Much later now, I realized that all these people taught me about a critical lesson about the essence of rehabilitation. Most of us are just trying to make it through the day or week so we can go home, sometimes to a real home, sometimes to a familiar way of feeling when the body rebels, or maybe just to a safe place in our minds, but home all the same. And physical therapists get people home to their own private destinies every day. (laughs) Given the degree to which I was drawn to the work of Merleau-Ponty, the only French phenomenologist to write extensively about science, perhaps it should not be completely surprising that I eventually wound up in a scientific profession thinking about what we know and how we come to know it. Merleau-Ponty wrote that man is in the world and only in the world does he know himself. We believe that the inferences we have drawn about patient care are based on an accurate and precise understanding of the world around us. Of course, we must believe that we know something. We always have to act as if what we know is also certain in order to act in the best interests of the patient or profession. But as Wittgenstein clarified for us, 
The difference between the concept of knowing and the concept of being certain isn't of any great importance at all, except as I know is meant to mean I can't be wrong. If we as a profession are reluctant to admit publicly our misreadings and misinterpretations, how will individual physical therapists have the courage to confront their own mistakes or accept research that shows previous beliefs are wrong? Whether we make few or many, the corrections that the profession is willing to make demonstrates our readiness to show a mature appreciation of what it means to know something. So I want to make a confession. I am no longer certain about what I thought I knew. Since 1991, I have argued that the central question of the discipline is the relationship between impairment and function. I think I got the centrality of the question right, but its elements were inadequately analyzed. I thought it was akin to a monosynaptic connection. We would find a direct relationship between impairment and function based upon the orientation of physical therapists toward examining function and the profession's singular expertise in remediating impairment. However, after reflecting for nearly 20 years on this relationship and watching the science around the central question develop, I fully recognized the limitations of my formulation, influenced as it was by the prevailing paradigm at the time of movement dysfunction. Particularly after rereading Hislop's Macmillan lecture, one of the most revered and quoted texts in our canon, I now wonder if the paradigm of movement dysfunction may be fundamentally too short in its reach to describe physical therapist practice comprehensively. Specifically, Hislop wrote, by definition then, physical therapy is a health profession that emphasizes the science of kinesiology, pathokinesiology and the application of therapeutic exercise for the prevention, evaluation, and treatment of disorders of human motion. I was intrigued that Hislop, whose command of language is legendary, chose motion and not movement to describe the object of physical therapy. In fact, movement is a word she used infrequently in that presentation. So using a dictionary contemporaneous with Hislop's lecture, I found that motion is defined as the process of moving or changing place or position. Thus, I have come to ask whether we have unintentionally further narrowed Hislop's conceptualization of the discipline to movement dysfunction with an emphasis on dysfunction. Specifically, I would offer for your consideration that only a broader notion like human performance, as such performance is mediated through movement, captures the complex integration of systems that allows an individual to maintain a posture, transition to other postures, or sustain safe and efficient movement as an underlying dimension of his or her ability to pursue and perform personally desired tasks and activities under natural conditions. In fact, the Guide to Physical Therapist Practice suggests, already suggests as much in its description of the foundation of the profession. Physical therapist practice addresses the needs of both patients and clients through a continuum of services across all delivery settings to enhance human performance as it relates to movement and health. In particular, reconceptualizing our practice around human performance may facilitate an approach to building a diagnostic taxonomy flexible enough to incorporate all the factors that influence function, which can then be addressed through physical therapist interventions. Structural inadequacies such as biomechanical faults or pathophysiological occurrences such as cardiac or ventilatory pump dysfunction have required substantial mental gymnastics to be explained as movement dysfunction. Applying the international classification of functions implicit hierarchy of actions, tasks, and activities, what we typically have termed a movement dysfunction seems most often to be observations about the ability to perform particular actions such as rolling, bending, sitting, standing, walking, reaching, and lifting. Successful execution of an action is a requisite step in completing tasks that cluster within a larger activity performed in a specific environment. Under the rubric of human performance, the necessary diversity of impairment-based diagnoses, which must drill down through specific systems in order to direct intervention, 
could be unified at the level of action. Furthermore, recognizing the interface between person and environment in the emergence of disability, diagnostic classification schemes ultimately centered on human performance and unified at the level of actions could account for a number of instances, particularly in pediatrics and geriatrics, in which the physical therapist must attribute the locus of of the dysfunction to limited behavioral repertoires or environmental changes. A clear understanding of the continuum of actions, tasks, and activities might also assist clinicians in balancing remediation, compensation, and adaptation strategies in planning interventions to achieve functional outcomes. By focusing on the ability to sequence and execute actions and subsequently accomplish tasks and activities to achieve goal-directed outcomes in the real world in which we live, irrespective of dysfunction, conceptualization of physical therapist practice as human performance mediated through movement more easily encompasses the empirical reach of the profession from the most disease-afflicted states of health to primary prevention. Now, the flaws of my analysis will surface only if the analysis is discussed and debated, and it really does not matter if human performance mediated through movement is accepted as a more robust framework on which to explicate physical therapist practice. I am much more concerned to promote the habit of explicitly reviewing underlying assumptions as a routine endeavor of a scientific profession and revising our concepts and terminology accordingly. Such reviews may demonstrate on occasion that we were wrong about what we thought we knew. On the other hand, we may be equally likely to find that our certainty and our beliefs was well-founded and even further clarify why. When I entered the final phase of my formal education, primarily so that I could become an independent investigator in health services research, I chose to pursue sociology, another happy accident. Admittedly, the discipline was very attractive to me on pragmatic grounds as an opportunity to develop my understanding of quantitative research methods. As it turned out, my interest in philosophy meshed well with the requirements in qualitative methods, and I was very much influenced by sociological thinking about how we give meaning to our experience. Previously, like much of the individualistic psychology that permeates our educational training, I believe that personal or collective achievements were matters of personal value and reflections of the degree to which individuals were motivated toward accomplishment. Sociology taught me to explore power, social structure, and how groups culturally manage conflict and consensus to understand human interaction in our world. Early in my career, I met Miss Susie. Miss Susie had worked at a laundry in Warm Springs, Georgia, and she had washed the bed linens of Franklin Roosevelt. It was a great source of pride to her that she had been laundress to a president. Although she implied that she was a young woman when this occurred, the social mores of the times, her age, and her racial heritage suggested that she was more likely pulled out of an elementary school classroom to contribute to the support of her family. This woman, whose dignity shone through her classically handsome face, taught me another great lesson about the people we serve. People's lives are much harder than they ever let us know, and for that reason alone, they deserve to be approached with great humility by those of us with the power of a white lab coat. I do not recall the exact cause of Miss Susie's condition, but she was left with a deficit in recognizing where she was in space. I realized the extent of of her difficulty one day when trying to get her to move from supine to sitting. She had the ability to perform all the required actions, but somehow she was struggling to accomplish the task. So because I wanted to solve her problems on her own, my carefully worded, randomly placed, one-step command was to ask her to tell me when she was sitting up straight. From her supine position, she quickly replied, I am. 
Sometimes I have wondered metaphorically whether our profession has the same problem as Miss Susie. We just can't seem to figure out where we are and then move to where we want to be. We wander in space asking, who are we and why doesn't the world appreciate us? These questions are not particularly fitting to profession approaching its 90th birthday. It's time to face the facts. We are a mature profession with a mature association. We have arrived. I would like to offer an hypothesis about our physical therapy culture and why we persist in wondering if we have made it within the American healthcare system. Both sets of my parents were, of my grandparents were immigrants. As is typically the case with first and second generation immigrant families who need to prove they have arrived, no ex expectations can be set too high or self-inflicted inferior inferiority complex judged too severe if overcompensation motivates success. One of the guiding principles of sociology is known as the Thomas theorem. If men define situations to be real, they are real in their consequences. There was a time, now long gone, when perhaps people did not know who we are and, or what we did. I remember a neurologist speaking in an auditorium full of physical therapists in the 1980s who assured us that the outcomes of rehabilitation were all due to natural healing and could not be influenced by our treatment. Our professional culture spends too much time and effort worrying about whether we know who we are or whether we are appreciated enough. So much so that we have convinced ourselves of our own inferiority to the point of hiring makeover consultants who further entrench our identity, our identity crisis by crafting an apparently elusive identity into a slogan. By defining us ourselves as an unknown, by defining ourselves as an unknown, we suffer the consequences of our socially constructed reality. We waste resources on solving a problem of our own creation while missing critical opportunities to extend our value and develop the profession to its fullest potential. For some time, by selective quotation of the Institute of Medicine's criteria for primary care practitioners, we have touted the role of the physical therapist in primary care, especially in light of a predicted shortage in primary care physicians. However, no matter how much we have stuffed our academic curricula with the words primary care, we still substantially lack training in primary care sites. Perhaps if we had more honestly grasped the IOM criteria, we might have looked toward the mental health literature, which demonstrates the positive outcomes of collaborative and co-located primary care models for generalist physicians and non-physician specialists. Such straightforward applications of the literature might also have allowed us to confront the abandonment of the academic medical center by physical therapists as a preferred place of employment, hastened by the rise of the chief nurse executive in the 1990s. While we may impress ourselves with how we share cadavers with medical students or develop students as team players by collaborative learning with other non-physician providers, I believe that we are practicing the wrong game in the wrong stadium. The primary care team, the one that initiates a cascade of health-related decisions by patients, the ones with the physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants, perfects much of its practice in the outpatient arena but is always connected to an overarching and sometimes overreaching hospital system. While further development of freestanding private practice is a critical component of addressing the entirety of the nation's health care needs, especially in rural areas, let us not presume that others will not quickly suit up to take our place. We need to pay attention. The other players are running to where we are and away from where we appear to be going. We speak frequently about access, but rarely about availability. In our hurry to describe ourselves as doctors of physical therapy, we sent off over 11,000 experienced physical therapists to demonstrate their academic equivalence to new graduates. 
despite the fact that many of these individuals were already on our faculties or educating our students in the clinic. There are over 300 million people in the United States, of whom an estimated 1 million may see a physical therapist or physical therapist assistant on any given day. There are just over 10,000 board-certified physical therapy specialists. Can so few specialists have any discernible impact on the health of the nation? I believe that it was absolutely essential, based on clinical responsibility, to move our academic programs to a graduate structure. But perhaps, had we been less self-absorbed in our own academic insularity and more concerned with the patient's need for clinical credibility, we might have more purposefully constructed the traditional, the transitional DPT to offer experienced clinicians a broad range of structured opportunities for reflective practice, which may very well be the mechanism of change for those who have obtained the degree. We might have reinvigorated the now nearly extinct clinical master's programs or retooled board certification to expand both our intellectual and human capital rather than retrofit clinicians with academic equivalents to new graduates. And we might have avoided the unintended consequences of the path we took, a public confusion over the capabilities of the person providing the service, as well as an orientation to promote the doctor of physical therapy in a way that still disenfranchises a substantial number of experienced clinicians. We tend to quote the numerator with each new DPT or TDPT, but what is the denominator, which is always the critical number in the story? The smallest possible denominator in this case is all practicing clinicians. Doctors of physical therapy will not number in the majority of active practitioners until well after 2020. Instead, in our persistent reluctance even to consider alternative approaches to academic credentialing, such as those taken by law schools, or to change the regulatory designator to DPT, we have allowed this issue to both define and divide us. It is almost routine for Macmillan lecturers to comment upon the inadequacies of clinical education. In fact, such comments go back at least 30 years. Most have criticized the variety or duration of the experience. Some have criticized the lack of measured outcomes. The association's current consensus document on clinical education details the barriers to a preferred model of clinical instruction. The stated outlook is bleak, even for our current traditional approaches. The infrastructure is insufficient to support the process, and the process is inadequate to promote the outcome. I want to go one step further. We have divorced the context of learning from the very situations in which academically imparted knowledge is used. So I propose that the next time you make a key decision about patient care in an actual clinical situation, ask yourself these questions. What piece of knowledge did I use? How did I come to learn it? And why did I know it was relevant to the situation? I am relatively sure that the background to the question is located in your notebooks. But the critical understanding of the context of your decisions and the contextual clues that prompted your behavior are not. That knowledge is based in self-reflective clinical experience over time. Yet the bulk of our preparation is still oriented towards classroom time and the knowledge that can be stored easily in notebooks and doled out in measured units of academic instruction. The difference is as wide as that of using a good cookbook and becoming a great chef. The scientific basis for exercise as a preventive measure and as an intervention for the impairments of chronic diseases has never been stronger. Yet, despite our rhetoric to the contrary, we substantially ignore such topics as diabetes, arthritis, and neurodegenerative diseases from a population-based perspective. What kind of research influences clinical practice in the short run and transforms practice in the long run? 
For many years, I had a button hanging in my office that read, show me the science. More students are well-versed in evidence-based practice. More faculty have developed sustained lines of inquiry. Physical therapist scientists receive more federal funding than ever before, yet the transfer of knowledge to the clinic lags well behind. Certainly, we can point to the gap between the cultures of research and practice. Clinicians want immediate relevance from research findings, while scientists are oriented toward the rigor and reward of producing generalizable knowledge. The fact is, we need both relevance and rigor across the entire scientific enterprise. The emergence of the electronic health record and the development of registries offer unprecedented opportunities to expand the research workforce beyond the walls of the research-intensive universities to answer immediately relevant questions about interventions and outcomes if we are also willing to accept that these data will not yield definitive conclusions. Generally speaking, randomized controlled trials to test interventions are prohibitively expensive when the goal is to determine the effectiveness of an intervention across a wide range of settings or populations. We need to consider how other models used throughout health services research, such as demonstration projects, can balance relevance and rigor, as well as yield critical insight about implementation strategies that promote the uptake of innovation. When will we begin to tackle these issues? By 2020, when we will be 100 years old? Or will we repeat the same concerns for the next 50 years? Someday there will be no road down which the future can be kicked. Will the legacy of this generation be that we let the most pressing concerns of practice, research, and education languish until another time? That we used our resources to hire executive coaches and corporate consultants and to boast our greatest accomplishment was to realign governance? Were we to tap into the collective expertise within our membership and direct our substantial association resources to the important issues with the all-out concentration of a Manhattan Project until we had achieved our end, I am certain we would succeed. And failure is really not an option here. At least some of the honor of this lecture belongs to the staff of the former Division of Practice and Research at APTA, whose efforts helped to ensure the scientific basis of practice by capitalizing on the explosion of rehabilitation research in the last 20 years. Over the course of 10 years, this band produced an extraordinary string of hits. The second edition of The Guide, The Catalog of Tests and Measures, The First Clinical Research Agenda, Hooked on Evidence, Open Door, APTA Connect, Two Outcome Instruments, The National Outcomes Database, and The Severity Intensity Model of Alternative Payment. Collectively, these projects, which staff continue to refine and expand, will ensure that practice will point to the evidence and put what you think and how you came to think it over what you did and how long it took. While each of these initiatives strengthens the possibility of a sufficiently broad evidence base for practice, an overly aggressive consumer perspective fed by dwindling state revenues and organizational aggrandizement, already suggests the ability to discriminate among professionals in, term, that in terms of effectiveness that such a system is close at hand. Similarly, commercial entities promote themselves as able to identify best practices and distinguish among providers. Where is the science to back up these claims? What efforts have been taken by these groups to develop, implement, and validate the extensive assessment required to judge competence using linked measures of process and outcome, all in the absence of valid measurement tools and known dose-response relationships and informed by only the most preliminary evidence on comparative treatment effectiveness? We cannot let these assertions, which outstrip the available evidence, go unchallenged. Science is the responsibility of a profession, 
and it is the obligation of a professional society to exercise it. This obligation will challenge us to hold ourselves as accountable as we would hold others. Despite our directive to stay on message, we dishonor our scientists and the clinicians who contribute to research when we tell the story as we would like it to be, rather than admit the limitations of our own data. We advertise using statements about treatment superiority, despite the clear fact that no such comparisons have been attempted in the very studies we cite as evidence. We have backed up claims for effectiveness using any published research, regardless of whether the target condition, the population, or the interventions are the same. Politicians know this tactic, tactic well. Give the answer you want, regardless of the question asked, to get your message out. Ultimately, a single misstatement can destroy all the credibility we have built with patients, payers, and politicians. Truth cannot be the first casualty of ambition. I'm not sure if members fully realize how much we burden ourselves and the association with interesting but unnecessary projects that do not propel us forward. You know, do they realize the time staff needs to develop effective strategies and tactics to respond to the House's vision and, or position or to the board's goals and objectives? This division of labor provides the first clues that there are specific roles and respective outcomes that define each of these components of the association. When the House starts to debate strategy or select tactics, or we allow staff to create a direction for the profession by default, we easily end up in the wrong place. There is a real distinction between a professional society and a trade association. A professional society gathers together individuals, usually in a learned occupation, whose primary concern is the profession and their roles within it. The primary reason for joining and remaining as a member of a professional society is the degree to which the society's activities meet those concerns. A professional society is typically only as strong as the member support it generates. Combining the large number of members who attend programming at CSM an annual conference each year, there can be no doubt that our members are mostly concerned with practice, research, and education. Even though some of our most stunning achievements in advocacy have been around practice, research, and education. The profession, professional society functions as an extension of the profession itself, and the primary outcome will be the degree to which the profession succeeds. In contrast with professional societies, a trade association, more typically with businesses or corporations as members, will mostly concern itself with organizing activities to promote an industry through public relations, advertising, and lobbying, particularly to influence how the industry is viewed and to exert political influence over public policy that affects the industry, primarily its economic well-being. The perceived value of a trade association lies in the degree to which its efforts are judged successful in promoting and protecting a business. There are numerous examples of trade associations that act primarily as agents of an industry and who rely upon consultants to patch together their advocacy plans with just enough member advice to make the effort credible. Like the societies of our colleagues in medicine, APTA is elements of both a professional society and a trade association, and the two are not necessarily incompatible. But they are divergent perspectives, and which one is platform to the other makes all the difference in how they expend their resources. It might be enough if APTA were just a top-tier trade association. But our members do not regard their vocation as just being in an industry, nor are all segments of our membership concerned about the same set of business practices. For example, most of us are not owners, and the owners among us have generally resisted models for professional partnership, such as might be found in medicine, law, and architecture. Nor is there widespread expectation that most graduates will go off and start a small business, as might be the case in dentistry, optometry, or chiropractic. 
Are we inadvertently reorienting the association for a profession that exists for only a few disproportionately influential members under some narrow notion of what best helps the business of physical therapy but ignores the diversity of economic organization in this profession? Does this help to explain why members whose primary orientation is to practice research and education have taken it upon themselves to initiate important work on diagnosis, outcomes, and clinical guideline development, while others seek to reorganize within APTA with the belief that the association can no longer specifically address their particular needs? We cannot afford to be many associations, each speaking for the segment of the profession. We need to be one profession, one association, and one voice. The time has come to recommit APTA to the intention of our founders to form a society in service to a profession and not pursue an association that provides services segmented to an industry. Orienting to the extreme ends of the spectrum, which shall it be? Professional transformation or promotional t-shirts? Most of us have heard the stories of the reconstruction aides. The photographs of Molly and her charges at Reed College suggest more a tranquil finishing school than a wartime training for a select corps of women quite unlike their peers when many women were infrequently allowed to pursue higher education and none were yet allowed to vote. Neither fact delayed their determination to take the next step. When they arrived in France, there were no proclamations of Reconstruction Month. In fact, they were told to return home by the commander of the army post to which they had been sent. Did they send telegrams grousing that they had been denied a seat at the Reconstruction table? No, they simply recognized their own worth and set about to alter their place in the contemporaneous social structure. They refused to be bound by circumstances or allow anyone to redefine their purpose. So they stayed put, struggled with substandard working conditions, used their knowledge and skills to their fullest ability, and demonstrated that rehabilitation could restore mobility and function. When the Surgeon General disbanded them a few years later, Macmillan and her colleagues just went forward, founded a professional society, and began to develop educational standards to ensure competent clinicians, a responsibility over which they took complete ownership. APTA has a long history of not giving in and not giving up. Medicare coverage for physical therapy services may be one of the two most important outcomes of concerted efforts in the last century to legitimize physical therapy as an independent and self-directed profession. The other, of course, being the recognition of CAPTI as the sole accrediting body for physical therapy education. We have yet to fully appreciate how far our skill and advocacy has taken us toward direct access under Medicare. The pressure exerted by our legislative efforts were essential to the the substantial regulatory relief enacted in 2005, which was just short of the congressional change required to enable direct access under Medicare. We wrote the playbook for emerging health professions in the last 50 years. We have no need to back away from nuisances inflicted by our imitators in their efforts to become our equals. In fact, if power is in the perception, such attempts confirm our much better established position in the political milieu. I am not suggesting that we will not have to argue cogently for our point of view, or that authorizing bodies such as state legislatures, regulatory commissions, or accrediting agencies can be ignored. On the contrary, no group is autonomous as we have intended to use that word, to mean independent or apart. But there is another sense of autonomy that is a more apt description of our aims, self-determination. Physical therapy must continue to be a self-determined profession. We belie our past if we forget that each victory has been hard-won and expensive in time, effort, and money. 
and none were with the consent, cooperation, or collaboration of those who would block our ascendance to full professionalism. Negotiation must advance our position, prevent its loss, or strategically move the confrontation to a venue that is more likely to support our cause. Compromise by the association without clear advantage to the profession is capitulation. In the fall of 2007, I realized I needed to restore my passion for this profession. So I returned to where I began as a clinician in inpatient rehabilitation, treating individuals with neurological insults and polytrauma. Although I was quite apprehensive at first, it became an exhilarating experience. I had nothing to prove, no right career move to make. I entered each patient encounter without anything else on my mind, no managerial paperwork waiting for me back at my desk, no assignments for class I was taking or teaching, no kids to be picked up at daycare. Just simply me, my patients, and the time we had together. Perhaps for the first time in my career, it really was all about the patient and not what was going on in my life. One of my patients was just a little younger than me. Ralph had suffered a severe neurological insult. His wife was completely devoted to becoming his full-time caregiver. We were together in the gym one afternoon working on segmental rolling onto his side. His wife was on the mat with him and as I was trying to teach her how to assist him, at one point he reached up and his arms engulfed her as he began to pull her toward him. I let the scene unfold, uncertain as to what would happen next. Although his actions were unclear, the meaning of the words that spilled out through his dysarthria was not. He said, I thought you would leave me. And she said softly, I never could, as she laid down next to him and cradled in his embrace. This time I got it. Ralph and his wife had found their destiny in that moment. They were already home. Illness is a disruption of human potential, and physical therapy is a moral enterprise. Repeatedly, our knowledge refashions the humanity of our patients and creates an environment where hope survives. Our ethical imperative as healthcare providers lies within these moments. We take scraps of human existence and turn them into whole cloth. We do nothing less than mediate justice when a person's life has indeed been unfair. If we ever forget that, then all has been for naught. There are many steps to be taken each day. The next ones are for the profession and the patients we serve. Their destiny, our destiny, is this moment now. Thank you. I have a few more words. Hang on. I, I have so many people to thank. The, the individuals who wrote so generously in their letters of recommendation, all the patients, students, and colleagues who taught me about ethics or diagnosis or research or political incrementalism, Most especially, I want to thank my daughters, Katie and Nicole, who gave me the only job that really mattered in life, and my wife, Nancy, my friend and my love. Without her, I would not be here. So it's, it's only fitting that this event takes place today on the occasion of our 38th wedding anniversary. And... And all of you who rode an elevator into the night in Kansas City, sang Chapel of Love along the river walk, rode a horse in North Carolina or dangled your feet in Lake Cumberland, shared a brown bag lunch at headquarters, let me into your life, believed in me when preliminary evidence strongly suggested otherwise. <laughs> or gathered here at a devotion to this profession and will continue to take it forward beyond what can even be conceived today, 
I thank you for this honor, the blessings this profession has brought to my life, and the years past, present, and to come in this association that bind us together. Sometime very close to the end of his career, William Butler Yeats, the, the great Irish poet, visited the Municipal Gallery in Dublin, and as he strolled through the portrait gallery, he was struck by the portraits of his friends who had led the Irish Rebellion and founded a nation. He recognizes his debt to them and judges his own accomplishment far short of theirs. Let me end there then with his words. Think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say my glory was, I had such friends. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for your most inspiring and thought-provoking lecture this, this morning. It is my honor on behalf of the American Physical Therapy Association to present you with the Mary McMillan Lecture Medallion and a certificate in commemoration of this lecture you have just given us today. Please join me once again in honoring Andrew. Thank you, and that concludes this wonderful session. Enjoy the rest of the conference.